got to get together and let it don't be no stormy weather and we'll all be in the same boat, brother. Okay, now you're going to want this Jim Crow blues, huh? That brings news and makes a man wear out his shoes when they get in a Jim Crow place. Nearly half a million elementary and secondary students did not show up for school in New York City. In freezing temperatures, picket lines formed outside 300 school buildings and over 3,000 students marched with signs reading, Jim Crow must go. If only it were so easy to get rid of systemic racism, class warfare, and everything else by effacing a couple of murals. You know, this is so simplistic and so ridiculous. Bayard Rustin was one of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s closest advisors. Key figure in the civil rights movement, Rustin advised Dr. King on nonviolent protesting and was a chief organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. And while that march is commonly considered one of the largest civil rights demonstrations in U.S. history, the largest demonstration was actually a system-wide school boycott in New York City beginning on February 3, 1964. Today, our colleagues at the Meany Labor Archive explore the fascinating and complicated legacy of Bayard Rustin. This coming Saturday, July 17th, the annual San Francisco Labor Fest will present a play entitled The Murals Online, starting at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. The Murals is a play dramatizing the conflict over the George Washington High School murals painted by WPA artist Victor Arnatoff in 1936. Between those who believe the murals should be painted or covered over because they're traumatizing to current high school students, presenting a negative picture of African Americans as victims of slavery, and Native Americans victimized by white settlers who stole their land and killed them. We've been following this controversy closely here on Labor History Today as it perfectly captures an important debate between those who want to erase history and those who believe the mural should remain for all the students to see and discuss as part of the educational program of the school. Labor History Today producer Patrick Dixon chats with playwright Howard Flanzer about the debate and the issues. On this week's Labor History in Two. The year was 1968. That was the day that the American Indian Movement began at a meeting in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. This old Jim Crowism did bad luck to me. I've been traveling, I've been traveling from toe to toe. Everywhere I have been, I find some old Jim Crow. In one of our last blog posts, we explored King's radical legacy, specifically his ties to the labor movement. A key figure in the civil rights movement, Rustin advised King on nonviolent protesting and was a chief organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. While the March on Washington is commonly considered one of the largest civil rights demonstrations in United States history, the largest demonstration was actually a system-wide school boycott in New York City beginning on February 3rd, 1964. 
Bayer Rustin was the lead organizer for the strike, working closely with church and community leaders to organize their membership for the strike. On February 3rd, nearly half a million elementary and secondary students did not show up for school in New York City. In freezing temperatures, picket lines formed outside 300 school buildings and over 3,000 students marched with signs reading, Jim Crow must go. We demand quality education and we shall overcome. And although the United Federation of Teachers never publicly endorsed the strike, nearly 10% of teachers were absent and the union supported teachers who refused to cross the picket line. Rustin declared that it was the largest civil rights protest in the nation's history. Prior to organizing two of the largest civil rights demonstrations in the United States history, Rustin also played an important role in the Congress of Racial Equality or CORE, which challenged racial injustice through the usage of Gandhian nonviolence. As a member of CORE, Rustin trained and led groups in actions against segregation throughout the 1940s. Despite these immensely valuable contributions to the movement, Rustin was marginalized in both the movement and historical memory because of his sexuality, his pacifism, and his political leanings. Rustin joined the Young Communist League in 1936, attracted to efforts to combat the hardships of the Great Depression and white supremacist violence in the South. Though Rustin left the League in 1941, when the League refused to combat segregation in the military, he remained critical of capitalism and embraced democratic socialism. When Rustin was involved in the Black Freedom Movement, homosexuality was roundly condemned, harshly punished, and pushed out of sight. Among Christian pacifist groups, Russian sexuality was viewed as morally suspect. Often, concerns came from friends and allies. For example, when Rustin was in Montgomery for the bus boycotts in 1956, he was urged to leave so his sexuality would not be attacked by enemies of the movement. To better explore Rustin's connection to labor and his marginality in the movement, we reviewed a folder of his speeches from the AFL-CIO Civil Rights Department records. This folder, along with 100 others from the Civil Rights Department records, were digitized by the Maryland Institute for Technology in the Humanities African American History, Culture, and Digital Humanities Initiative. These records will be included as part of the Advancing Workers' Rights in the American South Project, funded by a grant from the Council on Library and Information Resources. In collaboration with Georgia State University, the project will provide online access to records of the AFL-CIO Civil Rights Southeast Division and national level records from the AFL-CIO Civil Rights Department as part of CLEAR's Digitizing Hidden Special Collections and Archives Program, which is made possible by funding from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Our June 30th blog post reviews the folder in chronological order to obtain a better understanding of Rustin's contributions, connection to labor, and his marginality in the movement. We've got a link to the post, which includes images of many of the materials in the folder in the show notes. By highlighting some of Rustin's speeches, writings, and interviews from the A. Philip Randolph Institute series of the AFL-CIO Civil Rights Department records, the post shows Rustin's contribution to civil rights and labor, along with how he was attacked and marginalized within the movement due to his political leanings and sexuality. Because pandemic-related access restrictions have limited us to digitized materials since March 2020, this is far from the totality of materials related to Bayard Rustin in our collection. We look forward to sharing more material from the AFL-CIO Civil Rights Department records ahead of the completion of the ongoing project to digitize more of these records. Don't hesitate to reach out to us if you have any questions. Thank you for listening. Howard, I'm really excited to talk to you about your new play, The Murals, which is debuting at Labor Fest in San Francisco and focuses on the uh, controversy surrounding Viktor Arnatov's mural of 
George Washington and American Westward Expansion at George Washington High School. And this is an ongoing controversy which we've actually followed quite closely in this podcast. But I was wondering if you could start by telling us what you found so compelling about this debate and what made you want to dramatize it before a wider audience? Well, of course, I heard about it from Steve Zeltzer, who has been engaged in this and has had a number of programs on the Labor Fest. And the issues that are involved for me are very important as an artist. I mean, that an artist, as a playwright, as a poet, you don't want your artistic expression to be censored. I mean, there was no libel, nothing involved in this. It was a controversy. It became a controversy about the depiction of Native Americans, of African Americans, and such, and it became entangled in the issues of the high school, the effects on the students, uh, and all this. And we had a discussion last year about it. There was a lot of acrimony from people who wanted these murals torn. The thing is, to me, you erase history. These murals are history of the time, done in 1936 under the auspices of the WPA program of the government under the Roosevelt administration. And there were many murals of politics. Many of them were leftists also. The George Washington murals, I've seen other murals and by some of the other artists, and they are much more incendiary in their depiction mm. of left, leftist positions. Basically, these murals, the two key murals I think they focused on was one Washington standing there next to his overseer where slaves are working with cotton bales, and the other one where he stands looking to the West, and the technique used by Arnatov was to gray out the pioneers who he pointed to the West, and at the bottom of the mural is a dead Indian. This is like a flashpoint for a lot of the people, because People said, and obviously the students might have said this, the high school students, it's a, it's a landmark, whether it's a negative landmark or not, in the school, meet me at the dead Indian. I mean, this is true, I gather, that the students would say. You know, mm. it's near the entranceway of the school. These murals are right in front. There's also a statue of George Washington in the lobby area of the school. Nobody has said much about that, but that's another story. Um, these, they, what Arnett tried to do, fascinating artist. I mean, I read Cherney's uh, biography of him. He had the most interesting life. 
starting off as a right wing against the Bolshevik government, ending up in going to China and studying with Russian emigres there mm. in the 1920s, then going to San Francisco, studying art there, painting, and then being invited to work on various murals. There were a whole group of artists, McCoy Tower in San Francisco. He was one of them. In fact, he was asked to organize the art. And then his work became increasingly left political, showing workers, strikes, other sorts of things. And at that point, from being a right-wing, I'd say white Russian, he was in the cavalry, he was in the, in the wars, he became a leftist and a very militant leftist artist in his work. The evolution of Arnatov is fascinating. Right. I mean, he deserves a play in it in itself. It would be quite a play. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he taught. He was investigated by the equivalent of the House on American Activities Committee. They wanted him fired because of his views. Where he taught painting at Stanford University, they stood up for him. And finally, I guess the harassment and everything else, he returned to Russia. And he did some murals there. They're not in any shape or form of the quality or the scope of the murals he did here in the mm. United States for the WPA project. But it's interesting that this was his trajectory, his journey was fascinating. But the murals in itself, are fascinating and they it's not all you know washington was a slave owner and uh, you know a land surveyor and somebody else but yes i i mean i have all this in the play he was the congress the congress the constitutional congress he believed he bought on to the three-fifths compromise, where mm. African-Americans were considered three-fifths of a person because mm. it gave the southern states, and he was a southerner from Virginia, more political power. Right. It gave them legislative power, monetary power, and everything else. So this is a very much a part of the history, we'd say an alternate history, not the, the great superhero president which is what was given in school but he was a slave owner a surveyor owned property fought in the french uh, was a an officer in the french and indian wars this long before the revolution so it's a very complex history and i think it's important for a writer an artist to help illuminate this complex history of the United States. And I feel writing the murals based on documentary, the school board hearing where they voted to efface the murals or cover them over, uh, uh, panels where there was contentiousness uh, from Labor Fest, all this material, there are many hours of 
material I went through. And I put it together in a way so we can have a documentary play and document this. And I tried, I, I incorporated the alternative positions. We start with a collage of voices where you hear the, the competing positions in the opening scene of the play with the voices. And from those who say it's terrible, sanitizing history, to we need to get rid of this. It's too traumatic. It's mm. awful. This is not the way we want things to be seen. And of course, controversy with um, the Black Panthers wanted these murals removed in the 60s. And as a character, I have Emily Lewis, the Black Panther, Minister of Culture, with the artist, Dewey Krimper, who's still alive, uh, did three response murals, showing mm -hmm. more of the diversity of the country, Mexican, Black people, others, you know, mm -hmm. in this country. But they were trying to insist at that point that the murals be painted over. And Dewey Klemper, an artist of great integrity, mm. said, I will not do these other murals. They have to stand with the artist of murals. They have to be together because this is part of the history. You need people with integrity. Just because you get a commission or something doesn't mean you have to do the bidding. I'll just give a, a digression a minute. When Lenin appeared in the Rockefeller Center murals that Diego Rivera mm -hmm. did, mm -hmm. those murals were were effaced. They were painted over. Mm. They, Rockefeller was the painter. Yeah. And he got what he, he was, you know, sort of the Medici of America or something like that. He was the royalty. And what he said went. Mm. And I, I feel this is wrong. This should not happen with me. But that are depicting truths. Mm -hmm. I have a scene with Arnold talking that he has to, it's complex, that in his depictions, you have to have a complex individual. Washington was. He was neither the, the savior of the angel or the devil either. Right. He was the person and part of his legacy and what he was part of the time. And that's what I tried to show in the play. And I created two characters, a young black woman and a white young man who argue the issues. She argues, yes, it victimizes blacks, showing them as slaves or native, you know? And, um, but in their dialogue, and they have a number of scenes threaded through the play, they come to the conclusion that the murals need to be seen by the students. And they need to be taught and discussed. And this is the way this would enrich their understanding of the history of the United States. So this is what the murals are about. I, I think I'd largely, I mean, agree with your position about the destruction of art. At the same time, many of the people who, who were opposed to the murals are 
I, I would imagine, people in which we'd find there's much that we'd agree with them about in questions of civil rights, in questions of inclusion, in questions of yes. equality and opportunity. Yes, of course. But yet, the, several hundred teachers in the San Francisco School District supported the decision, you know, which amazed me, you know, to get rid of these murals. And I, I, I can't, I, mean, I really can't, I mean, art is disturbing. Good art makes people think. And yes, maybe you want to destroy it. Well, I'll give another example. If we didn't have the pictures that were taken at the concentration camps by the Americans, people would say, oh, it didn't happen. It would reinforce Holocaust deniers. You know, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Right. You don't get rid of the evidence. It's right there. And you don't get rid of this stuff. Because this is absolutely part of history and our understanding of what has happened in this country. And there's a great intersection with the issues of uh, Native American rights, the things that are going on, what's going on with Black Lives Matter. Uh, all these things are touched upon in my play about the murals by the dialogue of these two characters, Aaron and Denise. People have yeah, used the phrase cancel culture a lot in recent years. Is this a study of cancel culture? And is that, I'm not sure entirely if that's even a useful phrase or a useful no, framework to understand these debates. No, I, I don't think cancel culture is useful. You can, I always thought when there were the um, stuff about hate speech on the campuses in the 90s, you know, and restrictions and such. I think you have to let this speech be answered, the pieces in the student newspapers, and then you write a response. You have people tear it apart or do it in writing or in speaking in, in a public forum. I think this is the way to go about it. You can expose things. In my I'll give you a little anecdote. Mm. When Mayor Koch in New York was running for mayor, uh, he had a, uh, a forum for the press near ABC TV. And I spoke up from the crowd. And I said, what about the J53 or whatever, 54 uh, real estate rule? which gave away all this to the developers. He's, they don't want to hear this. He sent his bodyguard, who was about six feet five, to threaten me in the crowd mm. because I, I exposed his carefully orchestrated news conference launching the bid for his third term. Mm. But this is the way stuff has to be done. These people have to be exposed. Mm. The telling line from the San Francisco School Board, which is in the first seat of the play, the chair or the vice chair of the board said, uh, this is the first step in re reparations, mm. you know, defacing the murals. Mm. This is a quote. And I thought, wow, 
you know, if only it were so easy to get rid of systemic racism, class warfare, and everything else by effacing a couple of murals. You know, this is so simplistic and so ridiculous. All this stuff is embedded in the culture, and it's it's not only the racism, but in this country, we do not talk about race in tandem with class. Right. It's lacking from even the left dialogue or the progressive dialogue. And this is a great failing in what the way our politics and our culture are discussed in this country. It's like the elephant in the room that hardly anybody will accept. You know, the, the right says, oh, when you talk about this, this is class warfare. Damn right it's class mm-hmm. warfare. It's a class warfare against working and poor people. That's where the class warfare is. Mm. I don't pity Jeff Bezos or uh, anybody else. You know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, you know? yeah. Yeah, from... You know, I have, I don't give a damn about that. But they don't give a damn about anybody else, really. Right. So this is my my position on the left. This has to be discussed. It has to be brought forth. And if it's brought forth historically, I was a teacher. I brought forth stuff that people read, you know, and discussed. And people said they didn't know this stuff because I would give, I would give and still give reading from Mother Jones and um, even the Nation or whatever, where these issues are at least touched upon. So people, the students should be aware there's a whole other political word and social dialogue that is there, mm-hmm. which is sort of shunted aside. So this is where I am coming from as an artist. This debate concerning Arnatov, interestingly, appears to have taken place in parallel or at the same time to similar debates about historical statues. And in most cases, those have been statues relating to Confederate generals. But there was a bust of Ulysses Grant toppled in San Francisco abolitionist Hans Christian Hegg in Wisconsin. And while there was a robust progressive defense of Viktor Arnatov, there was little pertaining to statues. Um, Let me comment on statues. Okay? Let me talk about the Confederate generals, Lee and other things, and the horrible thing that happened in Charlottesville with the Mm -hmm. statue with a flashpoint. It became a a flashpoint for the radical right, white supremacists. Um, there's a difference, let me put it this way, as I see it. These were people, if you want, if you're really patriotic and interested in the country, these were statues of people who wanted to destroy the United States as generals and such. Um, are you going to allow statues in Germany of Hitler? I mean, or, you know, I'm looking at this in that kind of context. 
yes, these statues are statues. They are historic. But I can understand wanting to obliterate these figures because very clearly they wanted to destroy the United States. Arnold wasn't trying to destroy the United States. He was trying to depict certain history in a way that would be disturbing. So I think there's quite a difference. That's, that's the way I see it. I mean, is sorry, just to push yeah. back a little, isn't it one thing, it might be one thing to have a statue of Robert E. Lee in the centre of the city square, that makes a very clear statement, but it seems it's quite different to have a statue of Robert E. Lee that was once in the city square, but it's now in a museum. The oh, fact yeah. that that, oh, that, yeah. that explains... I agree if it's in a museum. They just removed because, uh, the statue of Theodore Roosevelt after a big controversy in front of the Natural History Museum in New York. And I don't know what they're going to do with it, but maybe it should go in a museum, you know, or, or a place. Yes, I don't say they have to be destroyed, but they have to be put in a place where... <laughs> This more be. appropriate. Look, I mean, you know, there were, again, when I was in Germany, uh, Germany and Poland, right. I went to Auschwitz and Birkenau, and there were things about them, you know, in part of the, of the thing. But they were put in the context of what happened, you know? And it was explained right. by the, the, the person who led the led the tour, the journey through the concentration camp. I mean, that this goes back to the argument that you have to understand where a work of art comes from. I mean, there's a very interesting Russian film about Michelangelo and the politics and the patronage of the Medici and the other families. And you see how the art came out of out of this, and who was on it, and the politics of this. Mm. But you, you want to know this history. I think the most important thing in a, in a in a country, if you want to be aware of what can be done, social and political change, you have to know the history. Right. Now, I'm a strong believer and not effacing the history or omitting it and such. That's, that's what I believe. You're also the author and director of Lucy Parsons' Anarchist, which is a portrait of the 19th century radical black activist. Does the murals build on your previous work? Um, it's, it's one of my interests. I write many different kinds of plays. I can tell you how I got the idea for Lucy Parsons. Please. Um, uh, there, there was a book by the historian Paul Average we took, called The Haymarket Affair. And I read it. And then there was a, 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 about two or three pages about Lucy Parsons. And I said, my God, I've never heard of this woman. <laughs> you know, I mm -hmm. knew about The Haymarket Affair. And I thought it would be worthwhile exploring this theatrically and politically. Who was this woman? 
she was possibly a slave. Her origins, she covered up her origins. She didn't say she was black. She said she was Mexican, she was this, mm. or that. Uh, and the interesting thing is, the latest biography, A Goddess of Anarchy, by uh, the latest book, a professor, said, attacks her for hiding her own, for not acknowledging who she was. Mm. And, you know, uh, daughter of slave, such like that. But she was a, a remarkable woman. She wrote for The Alarm, which was a very left newspaper. Some of the speeches in the play, she believed in anarchy and even the more violent aspects, so she never practiced it. Because she, there were a whole group of, of radicals, her husband included, who started off, started off in the Confederate Army. Mm. And then sort of became radicalized, went to Chicago, was involved in Reconstruction, and then these German socialists, probably who came over after the failed revolution. And they were a potent force for change. And the eight-hour day and many of the root things of, that are so essential to the labor movement. So I thought, this is a very, very important, she's a very important figure. She spoke, she wrote, she was charismatic. And she exposed the evils of capitalism and the arguments about the police and the, and the injustice and And the Haymarket affair was the biggest miscarriage of justice where they brought all these, her husband and the other Haymarket people into a conspiracy which they weren't even involved in. But they had to sort of point the finger to somebody who threw the bomb in Haymarket Square, right. which was never never determined. They never determined who it was. Mm. And probably the police shot each other. Mm. You know, in mm. friendly fire. It's it wasn't the anarchists were all armed who shot the police. But they want to put the onus on the anarchists and the leftists mm. in Chicago. It, it, and I thought I wanted to show this woman who fought on behalf of her husband, the other Haymarket people, who was reviled and everything for doing this, but a very strong woman. This uh, this play won an award from the New York Foundation for the Arts. And the panel, it turned out, there was one labor playwright, there was a very well-known black writer on the panel who quite well-known, mm. and they voted for this play, because mm. I guess it told a certain truth about the United States. And I'm very happy to have written it, but I haven't gotten it produced. I've had readings by Labor Fest, I've done readings in New York, it was read in uh, Black History Month at La Mama in mm. New York. I've had all these readings, but the best comment I ever got was from a theater um, outside of Washington, D.C. 
see. I got the artistic directors comment. So the literary manager loved the play, wanted to do it. He said, no, this play is too political, more than personal. But of course, the politics and the personal were melded together in the character of Lucy Parsons and all this opposition. And you saw the, unjust, the unjust uh, A-market trial and all this harassment by the police and everything else. And the thing is, this, this play, you know, takes place in 1886, you know, at that time. Right. Things essentially, more than 100 years later, have not changed. The police act the same way, the courts do the same things. I mean, it's discouraging. I mean, I don't think my play will ignite a revolution. It's very... But it can contribute to a raising of consciousness about about these issues. So yes, it's part of my work. Lucy Parsons and this play was contemporary play now. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to seeing the murals on the seventeenth. Right. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm Rick Smith and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1968. That was the day that the American Indian Movement began at a meeting in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A group of 200 Native Americans gathered together to discuss a response to the U.S. government's history of broken treaties and the devastating consequences on Native peoples. The statistics of unyielding poverty and high unemployment in Native communities were staggering. By 1970, 40% of the Native population lived in poverty. The unemployment rate was 10 times the national average. Life expectancy was only 44 years old. In the early 1970s, activists staged a series of occupations at Alcatraz, Wounded Knee, and at Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is built on a site in the Black Hills that is sacred to the Ocheti Sakawan, or the Great Sioux Nation. The United States government promised native rights to the land in a treaty that was broken when gold was discovered. In 1972, activists staged a Trail of Broken Treaties caravan, which ended in a six-day occupation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices in Washington, D.C. They issued a statement that read, quote, We seek a new American majority, a majority that is not content merely to confirm itself by superiority of numbers, but which conscience is committed toward prevailing upon the public will in ceasing wrongs and doing right. Beginning in the 1970s, the United States government began to respond to Native people's demands. A series of federal acts gave Native communities more control over their education and improving their health care. Lawsuits brought by tribes resulted in further economic autonomy. Yet by 2014, one in four Native people still lived in poverty. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Bon Johnson told me to This old Jim Crowisms did bad luck to me and you. 
That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music is Jim Crow Blues. This is a protest song from the 1930s, written and performed by the great blues musician Lead Belly. Jim Crow laws were laws that prevented African Americans and other minorities from having the same rights as whites. Many of the pictures in the video by Monkey Man 427 are blues musicians and civil rights activists such as Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and W.E.B. Du Bois. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history, and see you next time. I'm going to sing this place. I ain't going to sing no more. Please get together and break up this old Jim Crow.